Call Steve Witherup. Calling Steve Witherup. Mobile. Hey, man. What's up, man? Are you there? Hey, yep. I am here. What's happening at the uh, Witherup house today? Oh, uh, man, it's way more of a hectic Sunday than I prefer. You know, it's it's nice when Sundays are kind of set aside, but it feels like it's been a whole lot going on. Um, are you guys playing catch up from being gone? A little bit, yes. Um, but Beth has, uh, you know, one of the things she does is a birth doula and she is meeting with a client. And uh, so I have children and um, but responsibilities with them. And then also we a leaky kitchen faucet. And so I had to swap that out. But you know what's weird? So a lot of things got done. Um, but you know how sometimes there's those weird things on your to-do list that for whatever reason, they're so simple, but you just can't knock them off. And then when you do, you feel like you just climbed Everest. There's never been anything that describes me better than what you just said. Like, so you're going to love this then. Okay. Of all the things I did over the last few days, you know what the greatest sense of satisfaction was, is my cousin. So my cousin's getting married in August and I'm excited to go. It's back in Pennsylvania, close family, love him, you know, all of these things. So like nothing but positive things about going except one thing. And that's the RSVP. And <laughs> we got the invitation so long ago and with the request to RSVP by July 15th. Well, today is the 12th. And the greatest sense of satisfaction I've felt in a long time was I took that thing to the mailbox and I dropped it in today. <laughs> yeah, it's the dumbest things. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's like going to get an oil change and you're a couple thousand miles over and you go do it. The, the, the big, the sense that I always get is not, there's a little bit of relief. There's a little bit of like, I freaking did it. And then the biggest thing I feel is like that took six minutes and I've been putting it off for four months. Like why I spent so much time thinking about that, it taking up mental space and it could have been done in eight seconds. And if Chelsea can hear me right now from anywhere in the house, she is like probably flipping me off. Like, of course, that's your (laughs) stupid thing that you do. And in the in that whole time span of not doing that thing, you did, you know, a hundred things that would be the equivalent of uh, yeah, uh, much harder things, yeah. much more complicated things, and much more things that you would not want to deal with. But for whatever reason, there's those certain things that just fall into that category of nope, can't can't do it. Or like you leave an email unread for three weeks, and then. You, you're like, all right, I gotta, I really have to respond to this. And then you sit down, it's like you reread the email and you're like, I, this only requires one paragraph of me typing. It's very simple. Like that, that there was no need to agonize over this. Um, 
I have a feeling you're passive aggressively talking about something very specific, like that has not someone hasn't responded to you. No, 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 no. I'm uh, I like active aggression. I I don't do I don't do the passive aggressive thing, really, because I don't remember stuff long enough. People are like, "Well, aren't you still so mad at him for that?" And I'm like, "Didn't remember it until you just brought it up." So, um, yeah, I'm often um often envious like not that i'm i definitely am not someone to to fall into that trap but like kids are the best at not falling into that trap like i love how you can have this whole episode with one of your kids or whatever and it's like two minutes later it's just like it never happened to them and <laughs> they're happy to see you and let's go do flips on the trampoline and and if it was two people uh in their late thirties and the grievance against one of the other, you know, one of them was one one hundredth of the conversation with your kid. You wouldn't talk to each other for four years. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. Talking family members that never speak or siblings that, ne- you know, I can't like- tell you how many of those stories are like, even in my extended family where it's just like, it started over, like you brought the wrong salad to some family meal. They had some terse interaction about it. And then it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pee on that person. If they were on fire, I wouldn't go to their funeral for any dollar amount. It's like, you guys realize this is really stupid, right? Yeah. I wish you were exaggerating. Oh, it's so dumb. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you want to get both of them in the same room and be like, uh, Hey guys, just relax. <laughs> just what if we all relaxed? How about that? Yeah. So stupid. Especially like West Virginia, Midwest, that whole thing. Like they're, you know, I, I'll tell you what, not this is way off on a tangent now, but who cares? Uh, I saw this Facebook post um, and it was this lady and uh, there's a person in her neighborhood. This is in like uh, up in Concord or Rowan County somewhere. And there was a neighbor and the neighbor was like, had a Confederate flag up and was burning a cross in like view of their house. And subtle. Yeah. Re- yeah. Really subtle. Well, then, then they, they, they posted the, the family who saw it, who was offended by it, obviously. And like scared about it, posted about it and said, um, I might cut all this out, but said like, uh, these people do this all the time to intimidate us. And, uh, it's so bad. And they, they drive a million miles an hour on the road and they air all these grievances and they're like, and the police won't do anything about it. I don't know how I happened upon this, but then I start scrolling in the comments. This is probably at two o'clock in the morning, mind you, where you just are like, how did I arrive here at this point? Why am I reading all of this? And work gets done. (laughs) Right. And then so deep, deep in the comments, the, that person whose house it is commented and they were like, this is, this is a, they, they made this intentionally blurry. That's actually not a cross on fire. That's a, that's a cross that we have that has Christmas lights on it. And that flag isn't a Confederate flag. It's something else or whatever. These people, we've been in a decades long dispute with these people uh, their their parents and our parents had 
beef with each other. We can't seem to solve it. Uh, this is not what what it looks like. So then they start like going, <laughs> they're responding, responding to each other publicly, and they're like talking about how this all started. And it started. Somebody asked, like, what are you like, how did this what was the inception of this? And it started because they couldn't agree on where the property line was. And it was right. like over several feet, like one or two feet or something on one of the fence lines. And so yeah. now, you know, a generation later, kids and grandkids are, you know, firing guns into the air to intimidate the other. It's just like, guys, it like I don't know. It it just strikes me that like one dumb thing can have stuff that just continues to build on top of it and it just compounds the dysfunction. So strange. Oh man, yeah. But that's so it just occurs so more so much more than what we would ever imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I called you earlier and to catch people up that are listening, um, I, I had a, a, a direction that I thought that we were going to go that we had talked about. And it just struck me this week with several of the conversations that I've been having with folks from neighborhood and then people out outside of that, that like are really wrestling with this. And so it felt like it was, it would be good to pivot and to, to change kind of the course of what we were going to do. And so uh, over and over again, this keeps coming up. And I think, you know, COVID happening and us in this weird new territory four months into this, uh, I think it's four months in now, something like that, um, where, you know, it seems like foundations of things have been shaken and there are all these big systemic things that have been, uh, that are changing and, and, and shifting but then I think personally, a lot of people are sort of evaluating uh, everything in their lives because there's time to do it. There's uh, a disruption of, you know, your own patterns and all the things that you just kind of mindlessly do. And um, even talking to somebody about church stuff, um, I think I think people are, are reevaluating like, what is what does church mean to me? Like, I don't. It's not something that I just have been doing for the last 14 or 15 weeks. And it's not just this pattern of like a social construct that I have kind of submitted to. And so what, what place does that have in my life? And then, you know, of course the bigger question is what, what, what part does faith play in my life and all of that. But the, the thing specifically that has come up again and again this week is people wrestling with vocation and um, and trying to figure out, you know, obviously Steve and I have this uh, working title podcast where we're talking about vocation all the time. It's not like it's a foreign concept to us or something that we haven't uh, haven't spoken about. But I, I do think that there's some urgency to it because I think with things being disrupted, people are, are kind of wrestling again with why, what are the reasons that are animating, you know, why we do what we do? Why are we uh, in the in the industry that we're in? Why are we doing the the work that we're doing? And it's given people some time to kind of contemplate how they arrived at where they're at. And um, and like even even in the the disc golf shop that I own, I I worked last Friday, or 
I don't know. I worked one day in the last week, and it was uh, it's the first time I'd done any hours in there. We had our employee was out of town. Kyle, my the guy that I own the shop with that runs it day to day, he couldn't be there, and so I I jumped in, and I had several conversations with customers, both that I knew and the, and then just strangers, and they were wrestling with this. Like I. I just kind of have been mindlessly on a path that was given to me, whether it's it, and it doesn't matter if it's a trade or whether it's, you know, went to college and I'm now in some kind of an office job or working remotely for some corporate gig. Like what, why am I doing any of this? And so I, I have been thinking a ton about that, but this, I guess it was two or three days ago. I, I promise I'll stop rambling, but I, I just wanted to kind of like follow the breadcrumbs of how I got to this. And so, and so a couple of days ago, Chelsea called me back to the bedroom and wanted to uh, watch this documentary with me. And it was on, it was on HBO and it's the Amy Schumer documentary. And I, I didn't see the first episode that she'd watched, but there was three total. So I watched the second and third with her and like, candidly, not a super big fan of hers leading up to that. Not for any reason. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't my deal. But it was such a, basically the documentary is tracking her, uh, tracking her pregnancy story because she just had her first kid and, and talking about how, how terrible and painful and, and just, just ridiculous the whole thing was she was had this disorder with it that made her extremely sick and you know the whole time she's working on a new hour to do a new stand-up special and she's she it talks about her her husband that she married and um he's got asperger syndrome and they're talking about their relationship and and they personally are filming things uh on their phones her sister's filming stuff it's it's really like first person uh it doesn't, I don't know. It just feels like one of the most, uh, uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Like sincere and in, like intimate pictures you can have into somebody's life. And so then, you know, it shows her having the baby and all the things that went along with that. And the thing that struck me about it was how, how much she exposed of herself in this thing, because it wasn't, it wasn't cute. It wasn't calculated. It wasn't uh, like it didn't paint her in a beautiful light every time. It wasn't this like storyline arc that somebody wrote and then said, "Let's let's go film stuff to get you know this sort of narrative arc." It was just very real life, and uh, it struck me as really important. And it's been something that I've been thinking about a lot. And so to tie those two things together, I think. The thing that I want to talk about today is like vocationally, how Steve, how you and I have kind of arrived where we've arrived, and all of the like actual real things that happen to lead us to this, and what it feels like to to do it. Because I think I think one of the tasks that pastors and comedians share is that they at their best should be like essentially offer their own story in a way that's real and, and rings true. 
And so, you know, with, with all these conversations that I've been having, I, I wanted to offer our stories a little bit and kind of the way we think about them as a way of hopefully kind of opening a conversation for you to be able to investigate your own story, your own vocation, your own kind of unique contribution in the world. And so all of that rambling is sort of the the ground or the, the, the foundation of what I want the conversation to, to be kind of in and out of. But I guess to start it off, so one of the questions that I asked uh, KJ Ramsey in our last interview with the author, she's got a wonderful book and all that stuff. And uh, we, we talked a lot about vocation in it. And one of the questions that I asked her that she's on a big press tour and doing all that stuff. And she said, no one's asked her this yet. And, um, and she said that it was like, it, it meant something to her that I had asked, um, was basically like, what, what did you want? What did you think that you wanted to do before she got this chronic illness that prevented her from doing it? And so, you know, I've got an answer for this of what I, what I thought my life was going to be. And I guess the, the way to jump into this is just to ask, like, what, what did you think you were going to be when you were 15 or 16? Oh, man. You know, well, I'll put it this way. Let me start by saying this. My, the earliest, the earliest recollection I have of like wanting to be something, um, was two things and I don't even remember how old I was, but I'm talking like, you know, kindergarten age or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the first thing was, I remember watching this odd show about these people that, uh, collected snakes. And my first ever uh, memory of wanting to be something was I wanted to be a snake collector. Um, how strange is that, that Asher does that? Yeah, I never made that connection until now, but that is strange and odd. And that obviously left me um, a long time ago, but I guess it was passed on. <laughs> God, and, that's so weird. Yeah. And the the other thing that I wanted to be early on, and I've heard other people say this too, so I'm not unique in this, is the people that drive by our house and collect our garbage, the one guy got to ride on the back of the truck. And oh my goodness, that was the the dream job. Yeah, like, I want to ride on, hang on to the back of the truck and collect garbage. So, snake collector and garbage collector were my first two uh, vocational inspirations, I guess. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, uh, I mean, do you have an early memory of that? I I was pretty I was pretty set my whole life. I. I didn't know any world outside of ministry just because that's, that's all we did everywhere was, you know, we moved a ton and it was ministry every time. That's, that's the only world I knew. And so I, I just always wanted to be a pastor. That was my, that was my thing. And, um, certainly a much different view of what, you know, a a major, transition or a major significant change between what I thought and what it is for me. Um, but that was always, I mean, that would have been my answer when I was six or when I was 16. 
Yeah. Did that ever, I mean, of course it, you know, was more present and less present as a driving force. I'm sure throughout that whole time that like, did it ever, that it never went away completely. Like you never abandoned that as a, as a thing that you were looking to obtain. It, it's really strange. Like my dad always talks about it as like he, Joseph never wavered. And, uh, and you know, I don't know if it's just because I was stubborn or if there was the added element of like, I felt quote unquote called to do it. And so I had been told my whole life that, you know, the call to God's irrevocable and all that stuff. And so I didn't never really imagine what another like scenario could have even been for me. Cause I'd always said, I like to argue, I think I could be a lawyer. I think I could be, you know, whatever, but I never wavered from saying this is what I was going to do. That's interesting. But like looking back in hindsight, is some of that because of the, the way in which the idea of call and ministry and all that kind of stuff was instilled in you? Um, or was it a, you know, a genuine thing that you never wavered from? I think it's a lot of things. I mean, I think at some kind of real like core level, I think that like God was leading me to do it. And, um, but it, it looks a whole lot different than what I thought. And so I think the thing that I held on to was a lot different than what the actual call was. Um, so I think there's part of that, the whole calling aspect, you know, I do think God was involved in it, obviously. I think the social contracts and the social pressure, not from my, not from my parents really. Um, but just from that world of like, if you ever have been called, if you run away from it, it'll chase you down, you know, like you'll never be able to get away from it. Um, I think there was some of that. And then too, I mean, obviously your most, my most formative years in like of my childhood were in Concord and like, did you ever, did you ever come down when your brother was working for my dad in Concord, like early, early on? Yes. So that whole world from, cause that would have been from the time I was seven or eight until I was like 12 or 13. Um, that world was so formative for me. And so like, you know, it, it was like my dad specifically and, and then other pastors like your brother and this world, these were like the, the rock stars within it. You know, these were the coolest people and, you know, we're, watching SNL every week and then they're doing knockoff SNL skits for the youth group, you know, and there's 400 kids in the youth group at that point. And my dad is wrestling professional wrestlers in front of a thousand people and racing NASCAR drivers to raise money for missions. And all of these things that like, when you talk about now are so hilarious and so like ridiculous that that was happening, you know, like, uh, and and I mean that in the best way. Like, I think it was such a cool childhood. And so I think I just always was like, if that is a job, because at one point in Concord, my dad was 
the head basketball coach for the school. Um, he was the chaplain for the school, the youth pastor of this huge church, doing all that stuff. And, you know, I'm like, whatever that job is, I want to do that. And so I think right. that just really, how fun that was, how, you know, that whole, their, their office culture of laughing all the time and just having fun. I think that was sort of like set in early on of like, I don't can tell you right now, I don't want to sit in an office and do some, you know, like this, this world is the one that I want to be a part of. And so I, I think that's sort of set it in uh, because like I, Chelsea showed me my diploma from high school that she found recently. And inside the diploma was like some kind of, I don't know, BS career kit kind of thing that you had, that we had done that we had written of like, what are we going to become and what are we going to do and all that stuff. And my, my thing that I wrote on it was like, I'm going to, um, I'm going to be the youth pastor of a very large church. And I, and like, that was the thing. It wasn't, it wasn't like, I'm going to help so many people. I'm going to preach the gospel. It was like that. It was the job, you know, I want to be in a mega church in a successful thing, not for the success of it, but because I want to do all these big and fun things or whatever. And, uh, that's where you landed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I, I, I really nailed it. I crushed it. I'm killing it right now. Yeah. In case people that are, don't go to neighborhood, if you don't know, neighborhood is a church of 16,000. <laughs> So as you as you grew up and didn't want to be a snake handler and a uh you know the I, I I will say that I thought that that would be a cool job to be cuz the guy that would like run up and jump as the truck was already moving and hang off of it that was pretty awesome. Uh tell me something better. I I mean the trash aspect is not great but the riding around on the back of the truck that would be fun. Um Yeah. What what how did it progress for me? Yeah. Um, I tell you, it's, a it's, it's a, it's a weird long story for me, I guess. I, you know, not to try to like turn something very normal into some like, you know, movie version or whatever, like and exaggerate how that whole thing played out in my life, but but it's always been a always had a weird spot in my in my life. Like I you know I went through the normal things like you know playing little league and I want to be a major league baseball player and all that kind of stuff and you know but then when you really start to um, you know, think about it, you know, through high school and all that kind of stuff. And those questions get asked and guidance counselors talk to you and all those sorts of things. I, I, I don't remember a time that I did not struggle with it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I wouldn't have been able to say this in the moment, but, you know, so I'm putting language back into my, you know, high school self or whatever it's, and it's because I don't think that I ever looked at it in terms of, of a job. Like, 
again, I'm not trying to say that I recognized this then, but I think that ultimately we're talking not just about vocation, but we're talking about meaning mm-hmm. when, when we talk about these things. And, and I think that I, some subconscious part of me always recognized that. And so I, I struggled with it because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I still don't, but I definitely didn't then. But what I did know then and what I do know now is that I want to pursue meaningful things. Mm -hmm. Like, like there's not, there's nothing wrong with, you know, skill tests that place you, um, you know, that place you or recommend certain jobs for you. I mean, or like whether it's personality tests and things like that, that you take and then whether it's guidance counselors or whoever are able to help steer you towards certain vocational expressions of, you know, those things. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's like, I, I, I guess I always kind of saw past that in a way that, like wanted to find deeper expressions of, of self and not just jobs, not just exchanging time for money, not just figuring out how to best, you know, fit within like, not just best, not just figure out how to best be a, a certain cog within a machine, you know, but actually genuinely search and find and participate in, in meaningful things. And that, um, even if you don't have that language for it, that inkling is not common among 18 year olds. I mean, not a lot of them. And so I'm, I imagine that that was a weird spot to be in. Yeah. Again, not to overblow it, but extremely difficult because you didn't know what was happening, but you, without the ability to, to put language to it, it was depressing because like, you know, becoming a computer programmer, that wasn't enough, like, or, or whatever in the blank. Like it wasn't, my goal wasn't to find a job. Right. And, and so, and so I, I didn't know what, I didn't know what to do with that. And, and I, so I didn't do anything with it. Like out of high school, I remember this is this is a stupid story, but I, I remember in in high school. So I was for whatever reason, our physiology teacher did this. She went around the room and she and, you know, not to be whatever, but I was a very bright kid. So I was in, you know, high level classes. And um, and so there so she went around the room and she asked everyone, well, what do you want to do? We were seniors. What do you want to do with uh vocationally and you know i think the you know doctor was probably the lowest rung that was said (laughs) you know and with my last name i alphabetically i was like one of the last or whatever and so i heard lawyer doctor whatever name a lot higher aspirations all this kind of stuff and it got to me and i remember just saying i'll probably just be on welfare and (laughs) like it was just this weird response but you know, and I wasn't even trying to be funny, but I was trying to communicate. I don't care, you know, right? Type type thing, and I guess, and but anyway, and 
it, it's not that I didn't care, but I didn't know what to do. And so outside, so I graduated and I didn't go to college. I, you know, I wasn't, I went and I worked at an auto parts store. Like I, it, and it was the thing that was, no, I take that back. I'm sorry. I worked at a lumber yard. And then in the North, when winters come, you know, it's like, well, that's not a, a thing right now. So what else are you going to do? So I was laid off at 18 for a winter. <laughs> You know, and my your, your metal lunchbox walking in the lumber yard back to your car. <laughs> right. And this is also funny. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this sounds not this doesn't sound too bad. I'm gonna, you know, I people they'll send me a check, right? I'm unemployed and I'll collect unemployment. Well, <laughs> my dad didn't think that was a very good idea. You know. <laughs> Basically said that you're not doing that. And so um, my uncle worked at a auto parts store and I went and worked at an auto parts store and I did that for a while and for, um, good part of the year. So I didn't do anything after high school cause I didn't know what to do. And then my dad had a very, uh, meaningful conversation with me one night in, um, in our basement of all places. And, you know, we talked about aspirations and, um, you know, different things like that. And what do you want to do with your life? And all of those cliche, but very powerful questions. And it, it, you know, it, it, it changed the course a little bit. It didn't, it didn't steer me in any, it, it didn't create any, you know, eureka type moments of enlightenment, but I was like, well, what am I going to do? You know, I can't just work in an auto parts store. I, you know, I, I mean, whether, not that there's anything wrong with it, but I I just couldn't. It and right. so I I chose two paths at that point. Basically, I I was trying to decide: do I want to be an architect, or do I want to um, study theology? Those were two two the two paths that I, I I landed on. And like, you know, I at that moment there was no paul on damascus road there wasn't anything like that but but i chose theology uh you know i might as well i might as well flip the coin mm -hmm. and so uh my brother was at southeastern um and had a very you know clear call to become to enter um the ministry and be a pastor and all these things and and he was there and so uh my dad said why don't you try it he said try a semester you know, and he is, you know, I guess, parenthetical, whatever. I just have the greatest father in the world. And he said, try a semester. And, and we are not, we were not wealthy. He said, I'll pay for it. If you don't like it, don't go again. That's don't go awesome. Back. Yeah. And so I took him up on that. And so I probably entered, you know, Southeastern as one of the most, undecided like i didn't know what i was going to do with that or why i was there or anything like that but i chose theology over architecture and um and so i went there for years you know we've talked uh we've talked a lot a lot a lot on the phone both podcasts and about you know podcasts probably account for five percent and then hundreds and hundreds of hours not and i, I didn't know that story i didn't there's like, there are gaps in your story that I didn't know. And I didn't know any of that stuff about high school, how you got to Southeastern and all of that. So 
so you le- so you leave Southeastern and having, you know, done the theology thing, you go back to Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I know there's, well, there's probably a lot of details, more details than you would want to know, whatever. But yeah, so I, I went four years. Within that four years, um, this this would probably be the subject of another time but there were there was there was a couple of moments there was one in particular that happened that if i had to put on my short list of um you know god encounters um this would be on on the top two like and and the the only reason i bring that up is because an enormous amount of that moment for me had to do with what I was supposed to do with my life. And I, I know I'm being, I'm not trying to be vague on purpose or whatever. And, but it's, it's a longer conversation, I sure. guess, than we would have time to get into. So, but because the point of it is this, that the message was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced, but there was an enormous amount of vagueness to it. Mm-hmm. And so it basically only fueled the fire that was already burning within me. And by that, I mean this, that I wanted to experience a meaningful existence in life, but there wasn't a specific, uh, there wasn't specifics given to how that was to be obtained. Like, you know, for example, like if you, if you had this wonderful God encounter and God said, um, you know, I want you to, uh, whatever, be a, be a lawyer, then, okay, wonderful God experience. I now am able to create the steps in order to obtain that. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? But mine was more about just this overall, you know, meaningful way of being in the world. And, and so I didn't know what to do with it. And again, it almost, um, it, it, it almost created a, a deeper sense of despair Yep. because, because like, okay, that doesn't mean I'm supposed to fill out applications for, you know, circuit city. I, mm-hmm. I, what to do with it. So after school, I went home, I, I moved back in with my parents. Um, again, long story short, but three hours, three credit hours short I'm, I, of, of graduating. Like I, um, Three credit hours is one class. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and again, not trying to, I'm not trying to make myself sound like um, <laughs> whatever Matt Damon's character was on Goodwill Hunting. Oh yeah. But, but I'm, br- I, I was bright. Like I, like A's in college, but, but I didn't care enough to, to do that last three hours, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so I moved back home and um, I, I started working isn't for Amish as a carpenter and <laughs> they started training me and, you know, and so I, I ended up falling into a rut of, of, of doing that for, for quite a, for quite a while. I can't remember how many years. Um, boy, I don't remember how many years now. And within, within this large chunk of time, that if I really went back and it's like six or seven years, isn't it? Because you moved to Concord 
when you were almost 30, right? Or like 28 or something? Yeah. Yeah. I spent, yes, I spent six. Yeah. Well, let's just call it six years. I spent six years doing a few different things. Like I would work, I would work for these Amish carpenters long enough to save a bunch of money. And then I would quit for a while. (laughs) And then I would do things like, you know, I'd come down and stay with my brother. Some, I would go to Florida. Um, I would do, you know, some things like that. Um, I, I quit for a while to go work on like for this pipe fitting thing that took me over into like into Singapore and Guam and, um, yeah, I did some that, those things like Steve, I know not, I know none of this. And, and this is the, I'm not trying to sound more interesting than I am, but this is the cliff notes version. Like this is, this is a, it's a, it's a strange, whatever, six year period because it's all, (laughs) (laughs) I ended, I remember there was one time I, so I, I thought I would start house flipping before it was a thing, you know? Uh And it was so strange. So I bought this program and had these phone conferences. Of course, this was, I mean, internet was a thing, but not what it was now or what it is now. And so I ended up, so I got this mentor for this house flipping program and ended up being my counseling through that. it was it was weird. That's a long. That's a much longer story. Like a to- like a Tony Robbins type guy. No, like oh, this kid needs help, and I happen to have a counseling background. That's <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Like, hey, listen, bud, you're not gonna make any money, but here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk you through this. Yeah. So, but anyway, we that was part of it. But it, yeah, and then. What else? So I went and within that period, I came down, moved, or I I came down to work with a friend of mine in the film industry down in Charlotte area. And I I thought that that's maybe what I I wanted to get into. Um, But but all of that, you know, is just to say within all of that, it was it was the best way to sum it up. It was just six years of wrestling with not just job, but but what do I give my time to? Like, what does it mean like to find meaning in the world? Because yeah. like, he, like here's a way to put this, you know, what's funny is before quarantine hit for neighborhood, I was doing a lot of reading on the story of Cain and Abel and was actually kind of planning on trying to do a, you know, a series on that. And, and one of the things that I discovered through that, that was, you know, pretty meaningful to me as I look back, like in throughout my life was, um, so Cain and Abel both offered sacrifices to God, right? Mm-hmm. So the Cain, they both, they both put their life energy toward something and offered sacrifices to God. Cain offered vegetables, Abel offered, Abel offered, uh, a burnt lamb. And there's a whole lot going on in that story. And, and I don't, you know, this isn't the, the totality of it, but, but one of the things that I, I drew from that is not all of 
sacrifices are equal. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that in one sense that's obvious. And I know that one of the things that we like to go to in that story is like, you know, well, Cain's heart wasn't in it. And, you know, his heart wasn't pure and Abel's heart was. And, and I, there's probably a lot to that, but I think there's, there's other layers to it. It's like just the idea of not all sacrifices are the same. And so what are you going to, like, what are you going to sacrifice for? Like, what are you going to commit to? Because like, you know, we live in this world and I, and, and I remember thinking this very early on, it's like, you know, the idea of sacrifice in and of itself, is not enough, mm-hmm. right? Both Cain and Abel sacrificed. So, like, I could give eighty hours a week of my life to something, mm-hmm. but that's not enough. That's not heroic. That's not honorable if it's not sacrificed for the sake of the good. Mm-hmm. And you know, the ultimate sacrifice that we were called to, you know, is pick up your cross. And again, that's not just some arbitrary that's not just some arbitrary thing of like pick up a rock and climb a hill just so you can prove that you can do it. It's like, no, the cross is the ultimate good mm-hmm. the give life for the sake of the world. And, and I think that that's also what was being told a little bit in the Cain and the Abel story, even though we don't have the, you know, all the details, but we can, we can draw that out that Abel somehow was sacrificing his life work toward the good and Abel was not. Mm-hmm. And so I I was petrified and terrified of just like sinking into a place of giving 60, 80, whatever it is, hours a week for what? Mm-hmm. You know, not for the good. Sure. And so my goal was to find the better sacrifice. But the shape of the cross and taking up your cross and all of that shape of the whole Christian life is like, it just, it's one death after another. And like that, the path that leads, it is on the path that leads to death or whatever. Um, and it, it, I think the, the shape that it takes for us is that it is this constant state of ambiguity and not knowing and failing, you know, and that somehow that path is more faithful than the quote unquote successful path, you know, because you can, you can sanctify that pursuit that 80 hours for nothing, you know, for no good of the world or for no, for the sake of no one, you can sanctify it and say that it's about hard work and it's about preparing for your family and it's about whatever. But ultimately if it's not putting good into the world, it's, it's, it's Cain's sacrifice, you know? Yeah. It's because God, my understanding of God is not that he just simply chose, like, how, God's response to the Cain and Abel sacrifice couldn't have been anything else. It was just a, a recognition of the goodness of the sacrifice. Objectively, right. Yeah, and so... Like, it's not just picking and choosing it. it, He didn't arbitrarily say, I wanted, I didn't want fruit. No. So, like, uh, I'll tell this as a way to maybe further to that. It's like, um, so 
who was it? Rabbi Nahum Lev was was talking about this, and it, it really it, it it made a lot of sense to me because he talked about the difference. Think about the Israelites. They they talk about the difference between um, the work that they did in Egypt versus the work that they did in the wilderness. And so in Egypt, you know, again, we don't know, but just for the sake of telling this, they put 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week into building, into building structures, right? Like, so they, they poured their, their, their life into creating these storehouses for Pharaoh um, so that he could collect the abundance, of course. And, you know, whatever else is involved with with that story but he what uh rabbi Nahum lev talks about is the difference between that then and the story of building the tabernacle in the wilderness mm-hmm. so, like on the surface you have this same thing like <laughs> okay there is sacrifice of energy sacrifice of life sacrifice of of time all of these things for the construction of something for the building but they're two they couldn't be two different things the giving of because the construction of the tabernacle was everyone participating in a way that brings their gifts to creating a sacred space that was not what was happening in egypt Mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes sense but oh it's profound right Yes. And so so basically, it's again, it's, it's not the sacrifice itself is not the honorable thing. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice is necessary. Calloused hands are necessary. You know, tired, weary bodies are necessary. But what are you giving yourself toward? Well, the tabernacle was meaningful because it was it was a microcosm, a representation of giving yourself for the creation of a sacred space, which is ultimately all of the world. And we, we can look at that and see that that's so clearly present, but the experience of being in the wilderness and the, at least, at least in Egypt, we were, uh, we were building something that we knew what it was going to become. We knew where we were headed. You know, it was, it was a settled, kind of a thing, but the wilderness doesn't feel like that. And vocation isn't as obvious. And, you know, you don't have this, I don't know. I just think that, I think the the thing that is extremely present uh, in this conversation and in, uh, oh, and in the witness of scripture is that it's, the whole thing is completely foreign to us while it's happening you know it we only can go off of hunches we only can kind of hear the whisper of god and walk in that direction and then we're not always right in it and so what i think is so important about this is that like as you're talking about your uh into high school and college years and stuff and then those that six years after that you know, I, I think I think I would tell my well I think it's so important that you give voice to how confusing it was because in one sense you are going 
with your deepest gut core instinct to not like saying no to something is in and of itself an act, you know, it's an act of defiance against what's wrong, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean all it is is an opening for, for something new. It doesn't mean that the, the, the alternative is given to you immediately. And so, you know, I, my experience of that is, like I said, the high school thing I'm writing, I'm going to be a part of a huge mega church and I'm going to be on staff and I'm going to be really successful in that and all that kind of crap. And, you know, conspicuously absent from that is, any human being, any good work, it was all kind of conquest or whatever. And then in, and I'd had all these kind of, you know, what they would have said are these prophetic things spoken over me of you're going to do all these great things for God and you're going to change the world and blah, blah, blah. And then I get into college and have like my own crisis of faith moment, uh, and then am faced with, okay, when all of the underpinnings of this thing that it, when it was all secure, I could kind of keep going in the direction of my goals, you know, unfettered. Now, now that that's disrupted, those, that foundation is cracked. Okay. Now I don't know about whether or not those goals are worth doing. And so I had this like, significant, uh, depressive sort of thing for, I don't know, I think probably a year, uh, maybe, maybe longer. Um, I, Chelsea has a really good chronological memory mind that just, I don't have any sense of time, but I just know that I was completely searching for anything that felt real. And it was the way that it was manifesting was just this extremely, dark thing, which was completely foreign to me. I was not the moody, quiet, kind of angsty kid. I was the like, you know, circus clown kind of a figure, you know? And so it was in the middle of all of that, that I'm, you know, there are just so many things that I can think back to of like searching for what I was going to do. And so then it starts to get more like closer to um, graduating and Chelsea and I were engaged and all of that stuff is happening in the midst of this depressive thing, which is in, a, in, a, you know, that's like you were saying, it's its own podcast. It's, it's its own story basically. And I'm still just kind of doing the thing, going through the motions of doing what I thought I was going to do. And because I have to just get a job when, you know, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to be married. I have to have something to do. And so I, you know, I interview at this church and they fly me up there. And because of my dad, I've got all these connections and, um, I'm not, well, I guess I'm 22 or 23 at the time. And, you know, they're talking about a big salary and staff members under you and titles and all this kind of stuff. And then I go on one of their retreats with their, uh, high school kids and I go to this insane conference that was like, you know, one of those like just obscene, uh, charismatic kind of things that was just really harmful and not good. And I had like, I, I had thought I'd hit bottom 
mentally, emotionally, and I had a essentially a, a panic attack on that trip, and I because I I saw what a path of my life could look like, you know, if I went and took that job, and I almost left. I almost like before Uber got a taxi and just went back and went home uh, or went back to school. But I stayed the rest of the time and, uh, you know, I tried to kind of, uh, hide that from the pastor and all that stuff. And then I, I, I got back to school and, and called the guy who we were already kind of into talking about a job offer and all of that. And I told the guy, I can't do this. I was standing in the parking lot of a Marshall's or a TJ Maxx in Lakeland and said, I, I'm really sorry. Like this is, this would be horrible for you and it'd be horrible for me and I can't do it. And it was super surprising to him and he was gracious. And, uh, but like then, so the way that I tell the story or have, I have told the story was that in that after that, I, uh, I started thinking about center city and David and then I called David and then it was like sort of a done deal. What, what I don't think I really do well with telling that story is that I, I didn't, I still didn't know what I wanted to do at all. And, Mm -hmm. and I had no clue what ministry or anything was going to look like. And I didn't really know exactly what I thought about faith because I was still in a weird, completely dark foreign spot. And so there was somebody that used to be on staff at center city that I had known through Southeastern and I had, I think I, that's the first I'd heard of David starting the church. And I think my dad may have told me something about it. And so I, I, when I over spiritualize the story, I say, God put center city on my heart. What I think is if I'm being more honest, I just don't think I had any other idea of what I could possibly do at that point. Yeah, it's amazing how lack of any direction creates like almost this <laughs> um, exaggerated God call upon right. the right. little bit of inkling that you do have. Right. And now in hindsight, I can say that I think God was obviously involved in all of it, but not in the way that I I, th- I think I have painted that story. So I call David as like a Hail Mary kind of a thing of like, well, I don't have anything else. So I might as well just, I know that my parents live in Concord and it's close enough that I could move home and whatever. So then I call David, all of that. I He flies me up, me and Chelsea up. And it was the first moment of, okay, I think there's a shred of something real here. Like I have, I have never experienced this kind of normal, I guess. And, uh, and so, you know, with no money and all the things that went along with center city, I was just like, all right, I guess, I guess this is what I'll do. And I had no clue what it would lead to or what was next. And so I just, I think that that part of the story is is something that I I don't know that when you tell it in like a short kind of testimony style thing or like somebody asks you how you got to this 
it's easy to like paint God in the middle of it. And there's this certainty. And I, I knew that there was something in this and blah, blah, blah. But the truth of it is, if we have no idea what's going on right now, we certainly had no idea what was going on then. And so I don't see this thing as this like linear path of, uh, you're called, you go here, there's this big plan and that you feel like you're a part of the plan or whatever. I just, I know I've talked about it in the last couple of podcasts, but reading Eugene Peterson's letters to his son and him talking about in retrospect, I never knew that this church that I planted was anything. I never knew what I was doing. And it never felt like I was, you know, doing the right thing. It never, I don't know. I just think that kind of level of wrestling with vocation, I think that that's where the juice is, is that, that sort of recognition. Does it, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways. And like, and in a lot guess, of ways, not. Well, poor. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. And a couple of thoughts that that sparked, you know, it would be one. It's weird. We're almost trained to look for the, the, the glorified calm moment. You sure. know what I mean? Like, and, especially i mean and this is you know outside of the church tradition or whatever i mean i think that's true to some degree whether it's you know through like you know uh certain tests and you know like what what are you going to put your job skills towards or whatever but especially within the the church like and if you grew up with through youth group and all the um you know you've experienced all these altar calls and part of those were like the expectation to see a burning bush or have this light shine on you to, to give you your call moment. But I remember talking to someone and, and saying who was talking about this dramatic call moment and change the direction of their life. And it's like, you know, well, and my thought in question was, well, what was on the, on the other side of that? Because like, usually in those types of stories, that call moment is a, a more, um heightened thing than what's on the other side of it even and so you're left with these questions of like did i hear right did i make the right decision what was wrong with that like i had this damascus road experience and then so i moved to um africa and i'm just getting bit by mosquitoes right like and and i'm not saying that those call moments aren't true to some people but i promise you they're they're few and far between and 99% of the rest of us experience life in a much more slower evolving unfolding way in which we struggle to hear the whispers of God and the leading of the spirit at every change of direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because what's also true and this is bad for, when you're trying to fundraise or something, but if I'm honest, I mean, the, the conversations that I had with Chelsea, with you, with David, that were the beginning parts of leading to, uh, a start neighborhood. Like I can, in retrospect, say that I think God was leading us to do that. And I can see that there was some kind of, a, you know, that God was a part of it. 
but in the moment, I, and I, I don't think I said it as, I don't think I lied. I don't think that I like misled people, but it didn't feel like any certainty, you know, like, I think the, the thing that we feel like we have to do is to say it was God told me to do this and it was so clear. And because of that, I, I, you know, I jumped out, leapt out in faith or whatever. But I think in the moment, it just feels like a lot of ambiguity and a lot of like dissatisfaction with what what's there. And for me, the the place that I I have arrived or I have I have kind of come to or whatever is that if I don't if I don't follow those hunches or whatever, if I don't kind of pay attention to that dissatisfaction, then that's where the unhealthy things are. And so I think where I'm at today with all of it is like to maintain this radical openness to whatever, you know, like to whatever is going to happen and, and, and stay in this. And I know it sounds like esoteric or it sounds new agey or whatever, but I really do feel like that it, it isn't, the form isn't the thing that you're after. It's sort of like you talking about your high school experience. It's not about what you're going to do. It's about meaning, right? It's about like, it's not specific things, but it's about pursuing what's meaningful and good in the world. And so for me, if I can find that kind of flow where there's movement and there's openness to new things and there's, uh, you know, the ability to stick with things that are hard because there is the feeling of like you, that's a part of that flow or that energy or whatever. That's the place that I want to be in. And, and recently I have found myself even in quarantine with the church being a big question mark about how it's going to come back or when it's going to come back and all that. Um, I have felt myself more alive in my own calling or whatever. And it's hard to explain. And I wouldn't, uh, I don't like sort of caricaturizing people's stories and things that are happening. But so without doing that, there have been just so many moments recently, like probably a couple of dozen in the last month or two that have confirmed this is, this is the, this is the flow that you are called to be in like this. It's this energy that's animating you. It's this thing and it will take a million different forms and it may not ever look like what you thought it was going to look like. It may not ever look like what people around you think it should look like, but it's your path. It's your thing. And I don't know. I have, I have just felt the opposite of that quite a bit in my life. And so I have that sort of feeling right now is uh, just a, a little wink from God. I think of like, you're, even though you don't know exactly what it is, you're on the right track, basically. Yeah, and and the the result of of not, you know, hearing the specifics of you know a, a call is is not to do nothing. Sure. You know, because I do. I believe this as much as I believe anything, and that's that. Learn to listen to, in a way that drives us toward meaningful things mm-hmm. like no that's vague but but it's just it's foundational to me like like 
your pursuits in life better be deeper and stronger than happiness, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it better be deeper than that. It, it has to dig down to meaning and meaningful pursuits. And, and so when it comes to vocational pursuits, you know, I think the goal is to learn to hear the subtle voices that nudge us along and 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 oftentimes we do we do one of two things um with that one we either um just you know live in unwise ways and just jump from one thing to the next and you know and 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 just trying to just trying to find the you know the ultimate meaning in by bouncing around but but i think the majority of the population at this point, that voice has been snuffed out by the 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 rut that they have dug for themselves. You know, so like whether it's you know bills and all of these things that we have to give our we have to exchange our time for money so that we can you know pay X Y and Z. I mean, if we we know that the life that so many of us live. I'm not saying that there's not meaning to be found there i mean there's great deep meaning to be found in 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 that but i think a lot of people though have lost the ability to hear that that quiet voice that nudges them towards other things it's present in their life and and it's it's there but what do you do with it the spirit that would disorient you or that would that would make you dissatisfied with something because right. because there's deeper meaning on the other side and we don't want to be we don't want to feel those things and so and, again, and and that is not see the problem like in you know for me growing up or whatever in my era you know the the thing was like if you could all, if you were like a musician it's like well if i can only sign on a record label or make a cd or you know like like it's not it's not just shooting for the stars it, it's it's finding what is worth sacrificing for again back to the Cain and Abel story it's like what am I what am I giving myself to in a way that is not building Pharaoh storehouses but building sacred spaces or creating sacred spaces and we all have like that call is universal like there's no question whether or not we all have that call on our life. That's part of the human vocation. The pro the, you know, the problem becomes in, in learning how to decipher it and figuring out how that uniquely is expressed in our life. But I tell you what I heard, uh, uh, there's this guy, he's, um, giving this talk and he's, he's, a I don't know what he would be titled as, but I'll, I'll call him a healer in mm-hmm. a sense. You know, um, and he talked about, you know, dealing in talking with com- in community settings and, um, and, and doing like these healing therapeutic type sessions. And, you know, he says that things like death and loss and, and all of these other things that cause great amounts of grief, like he says, you can get through that. There's paths to get through that process and where healing is on the other side but he said that the most difficult thing that he deals with is people later in life who 
have said that they have felt a call towards something and never pursued it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you know you try things, you fail, you you become vulnerable to different experiences, so you suffer loss. All of those things, it's like you can you can deal with and you can get through because because you had the courage to to attempt them, you know. But but the hardest thing to heal from is feeling that meaningful pursuit you know, that had been placed in, in your, your heart, whatever you want to call that, your call and never having given the effort to pursue it. Yep. Absolutely. I, um, you know, I, I say the, this Frederick Beekner quote all the time, but you know, he says that, that true calling is the intersecting point and I'm paraphrasing, but it's the intersecting point where the, your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger and that if either one of those two things aren't present, then it's not true calling. I'm sure you've heard me quote that before. Right. Um, but then Howard Thurman has this quote um, that I read recently, and he says, that it's, uh, he says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so I think, you know, obviously to bridge those two things. I think coming alive is really, uh, you can only really come alive when it is good for the world, you know, but, but I do think that that gladness and that personal element of like you feeling alive and awake and you know, that's, that has to be part of it. Oh my. Yeah. And, and like when I said earlier about, you know, your pursuit better be deeper than happiness that of course, is different than joy. Totally. Yes, of course. When you, uh, to your point, when you find yourself, there's no joy in building Pharaoh's storehouses. There's joy in building the tabernacle. For sure. You know, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I want to make sure that's not misunderstood. This quote from Christian Wyman is probably one of the most important uh, things for me that uh, it, keeps coming back to me again and again and he he essentially makes the case for um reluctance as a prerequisite for real calling and uh he says he says it's almost the definition of a calling that there is a strong inner resistance to it the resistance is not practical how will i make money can i live with the straightened circumstances but existential can I navigate this strong current and can I remain myself while losing myself within it? Reluctant writers, reluctant ministers, reluctant teachers. These are the ones whose lives and works can be examples. Nothing kills credibility like excessive enthusiasm. Nothing poisons truth so quickly as an assurance that one has found it. And for me, I think that just the struggling with it like the wrestling, the resistance, the reluctance to go into it, that whole struggle, like everything, all of it that's led up to this moment is like in and of itself. That is not even, I don't even want to say it's part. I think it is actually the calling is finding your own ability to do those things and to, to live through them, to wrestle in them, to have them 
point you in the direction that you are now. And so I don't know that, I mean, maybe, maybe I will arrive at some place and, and have a, a season or time where it feels more, more sure or more, um, solid. But my hunch is, is that you, you just constantly live in that tension and that in within that, that God can then use that for whatever he wants to do in the world or whatever. It's a good, um, it's a good place to end, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, do you want to end it there? Or do you want to pray? Or I'll pray. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Lord, help us to be a people who are willing to be disturbed and help us to be willing to, to change. Uh, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us eyes to see you. We don't want to do anything mindlessly. We don't want to just arrive 10 years in the future uh, and have stuck with it with uh, good work ethic or putting our heads down or whatever. We want to be led by you, and we want uh, we want our deep gladness to, to meet that intersection. We want our deep gladness to, to meet the world's deep hunger. And so help us find that, Lord. If we're doing good things, but there's no gladness in it, we don't feel alive in it, we don't want to do it. Um, and if we feel glad, but there's no tangible help for the world, then we want we don't want to be a part of anything that's fruitless or worthless. To, um, yeah. So God help us, give us wisdom, give us courage, give us peace as we try to figure it out. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you that we are held as we do it. We love you so much. Pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.